This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann, and you're listening to episode 1638, The Sacred Gardener. My guest today is Stephen Martin, who, along with his partner Megan, run The Sacred Gardener in Ontario, Canada. Stephen is a long-time wildcrafter, gardener, primitive skills practitioner, and teacher, and joined me today initially to talk about his book on the Madawaska Forest Garden. However, as we delve into his story and the place that he comes from, we spend a lot of time talking about him and this worldview that leads to this deep love of place and the garden and the landscape and what we can do to tend to it and by doing so to tend to ourselves. So let's go ahead and jump in with Stephen and I'll join you again afterwards. Thus far, I would say I've created a forest garden. <laughs> it's 20 years old, and uh, it took quite a bit of doing. For the most part, it's just kind of run herself for the last 15 years or so. But how I got there, ah, yes. Well, how long do we have? It is a long journey, eh? How one comes to these kind of things. And the really strange thing is, I don't know if you've read any of the book there, the story of the Madawaska Forest Garden, but in the book, I'm kind of, I, I don't come right out and say it, but I basically am kind of outlining that this is the original form of gardening. This is indigenous gardening that I'm teaching in this book and I teach here at the farm. You know, it's much, much older than any permaculture or anything like that. It even predates what we think of as gardening. So for me to have gotten to that place where I understood that, I had to go through years and years, decades of foraging and growing food, and then having the incredible stroke of luck to meet some indigenous folks who could actually just kind of twist my whole understanding of things around so I could start coming from the earth side of things instead of the human side of things. And so this is kind of my shtick, is that I'm all about letting the earth take the lead and that that higher intelligence that's embodied in the earth, that the best we can do is channel it you know, the more we start thinking for ourselves, the more muddled we get up. So it's good to have a huge knowledge base, yes, but ultimately you have to learn stillness and openness. And so I did spend a lot of years in the bush just meditating and um, watching things, you know, listening. There's something, though, for that observation that we have in the world to spend time in a place both the kind of spiritual traditions that many folks come from as well as the emerging academic exploration of environmental education. They all speak to spending time in an area and get to know it. Some of that is through, you know, active observation and sitting in nature and being a part of it, just as well as, you know, getting field guides and getting to know the scientific names of things. Great. Well, let me do one little correction there. We all come from that spiritual tradition, right? We might have lost track of when it was, because it might be pre-Greek for a lot of us, and that's kind of where our history goes back to, our, our very surface history of things. But the truth is, we all come from a deeply rooted spiritual tradition with the Earth, right? And that's a really important thing to remember, you know? I, I kind of joke about this thing like, I walked the red road so long, I found my way back to the white road. I don't know if you know what that means. It's like following the... First Nations traditions, people who were here before us, and these traditions still live in the land, you know? These things came out of the land and they're still present there. So that's, that was a big piece for me for a lot of years because my own traditions, which I suppose are Welsh primarily, are obscured by time, obscured by history, obscured by multiple colonizations, and so kind of inaccessible over here for us or, um, for, you know, to a large degree, unless we're going to spend a lot of time traveling and, and a lot of money and energy to explore the past. But there are people who live here, or did fairly recently, in very much the same way that we lived in Europe or wherever we're from, you know, because we all come from that tradition because we wouldn't have survived without it. That's how I'm so sure of it, you know? is it's not like some superfluous thing like that you go to on Sunday. It infuses every aspect of your life, and everything you do is informed by the Spirit and by those traditions, you know, and those connections. If you don't have the traditions, 
and you have to reach out for the connections here, right? And there's lots of different ways you can get it, and it's all time in. None of it's going to happen on a weekend workshop, right? You have to spend time, years and years in the bush and living with her and watching her before you start to kind of get the message and, and hear what she's telling us, you know? And is that a big part of your story and path to get people to understand that and to spend that time and gain that reconnection? Yeah, it really is. You know, like many years ago, um, I guess 30-some years ago, I started teaching the, what was called primitive skills or indigenous skills. So it was kind of like bushcraft and, and that kind of thing. And then over time, it kind of evolved to teaching aspects of agriculture, aspects of wild food, aspects of food preservation and fermentation and all these things. But ultimately, you know, like those are the first little tendrils reaching out for something that we lost long in the past. And then as I grasp hold of them, I really realized that these are not separate things, right? Like uh, permaculture, herbalism, wild food, natural building... They're all the same thing, right? And they're all extensions of this deeper understanding and this deeper connection. If you approach them like they're individual things, like I'm just into permaculture, but I'm not into herbalism or something like that, then you're kind of missing the boat. You, you've, you've just latched on to one little piece of something and you're holding on to it so tight that you pretty much kill it because all of these things are attached to this bigger living vine, right? And when you try to isolate them, like we do like crazy in our culture, and even I I do it myself, you know, 30 years of retraining my brain, but I still want to isolate things and say, oh, I just teach this thing, or I'm just going to teach you this thing or whatever. And it is kind of what people want, but it's not really what they want. What they really want is integration and connection. I recently did a herbal workshop, you know, in Usually at the end of these five-day workshops, I'll do a little individual session with the people who come, just quick 20 minutes and kind of see where they're at and give them some intuitive kind of feedback. This one woman was a nurse, and, you know, she said she was uh, manic depressive, so which basically means you're kind of, uh, you get these huge mood swings. You're really up, and then you're really depressed and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, so I said, what, what do you do? And she tells me about this hospital and this kind of horrible life she has. And then she's a completely free spirit in her free time. You know, she goes to all these festivals and and raves and into herbalism and all this stuff. And it's like, well, you're wondering why you have, you're asking me why you have ups and downs in your life. It's like, well, have a look at your life. You know, like there's no integration. You do this thing for money you do this thing because you like it, but we've got to pull all that shit together, right? Because things are getting torn apart in a big way in the outer world, and divisions are endless divisions, but we can control our own little realm, and we can make it a priority to start to integrate things, right? So, I mean, a very simple example of that is making the time to garden or making the time to do some foraging, and, and you know, you slate it out. And then in that little time, we're having all this interaction with all these deities in the earth and deities in the ground and the vegetables and the fruits and all the different things you're interacting with. And then, you know, if you're lucky, at the end of the harvest, at the end of the season, you get to harvest all these things, bring them into your house and then bring them into your body. And so all of these things are like a thread running through all these magnificent little pearls of your life, right? And tying them in together. Whereas if you just go to the supermarket or whatever and buy your food and, and grow flowers in your front lawn or whatever, and you, you get it, eh? Like the more we can tie things together and that are integrated in our life, that's when the, the gold starts to kind of manifest on its own, you know? And, this feeling of being lost and kind of searching just dissipates out because we finally found our home. And our home's right here. It's right under your feet, right? But most of us have to do a lot of searching before we, we get to that point. And you say from your own journey that you've been working on this for 30 years and there's still a lot to be done? Oh, my God, yeah. You know, it's the strange thing is that you have to have a capacity 
to understand something. So when you first start to get into something like herbalism or, say, permaculture or whatever, they all kind of seem simple because that's just how our brain reaches out for things. We oversimplify things when we're first getting into them. And as you start to learn more about it, you literally develop a capacity to receive more information. So 30-some years in, I kind of feel like I'm just scratching the surface, yet compared to most people I know, infinitely more. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So in a way, I, I feel like I'm still at the starting, too, in certain ways, you know. There's just so much to know once you start to really know what there is out there. It is absolutely endless. And, and you know, there's this old uh, Chinese proverb about, you know, you want happiness for uh, an hour, you have a good meal. You want happiness for a year, you know, you find a lover. You want happiness for your life, then start gardening kind of thing, right? Because there is no end to the happiness. And it's all about attending to this divine connection, this inner divinity that is literally supporting our life. What could be more valuable to spend your time doing than attending to that divinity? And then in turn, the fecundity that's generated for you and returns back to you is tenfold, you know, for your commitment. So it's all really um, essential, essential in the teaching, you know, that I, I do is this integration thing. And at the farm here, it's really lovely because people get to see it. They get to see the whole thing. I get to see kids that were raised on wild food that know healing herbs when they're two years old can pick out what what's needed for you. A stranger who comes up here, hands it to you, and can barely speak, but knows which herb, you know, helps with this insect bite or, you know, this thing you're complaining about. So it's it's a really invaluable thing and it's it's not on the workshop roster, you know, but it's something our bodies need to see and then we absorb it, you know. And if you go to India or you go to Central America or the Amazon or something and you see people doing it there, you're like, oh, okay, wow, there's people on the planet who can do this. But when you come here and see a house that doesn't look so different from yours and you see people with skin color that's basically like yours and lots of other aspects of their life that is like yours, then you realize that you could do it too. You know, and of course it's deceptively simple when you see it. Everything is, like I said, the beginner's mind. You know, is is very fundamental. But what that does to people's bodies, just seeing that it can still exist, that there's a way, you can still exist. You can still have a car. You can still have a phone. You can have a source of electricity. You can still do these things, but still live in an integrated way with the earth. For sure, that's that's what we feel our job is here. There's this idea in kind of like the current wave of permaculture about transition, and that what Bill Mollison and David Holmgren taught us in the beginning was initially about creating permanent agriculture in a way that we could always feed ourselves. But as that idea kind of changed and matured into permanent culture, that now many of those ideas of peak oil and environmental catastrophes and everything else are finally coming kind of to the forefront. We're hearing about it more in the media and things like that. And now there are a lot of people who are looking to move us towards a more integrated ecological life that doesn't require collapse. And it sounds like what you're doing is a great model for that. Because as you say, there are still these pieces of modernity that you can have and keep as you learn these other skills and how to live a different way by gardening and foraging and integrating ourselves with the world. Was there a particular calling in your path that brought you down this road or some kind of an event that led you in this direction? Yeah, well, probably. (laughs) It's another one of those big, broad questions, but probably a deep distrust of our civilization. (laughs) And then I went out and lived in the woods for four years and taught myself how to forage and taught myself how to trap and taught myself how to build shelter and basically live autonomously from our civilization. But, you know, I was very young, and what I didn't realize is that ultimately you and your civilization are the same thing. 
you, you know, you're part of it. You're a product of it. And so after about four years in the bush, my dreams and different visions I had and everything started to point to you go back now because you've got enough. Now it's time you go back and you pass these things on, right? That's the deal. You don't just get to hang out in the woods and be happy. These are perilous times. You've been giving, given some message. Now you go back and you give the message. And I'm always trying to just hide out in the woods. Like that's why you don't know about me because <laughs> you know, I don't stick my head out too much, you know, and seep <laughs> into all this stuff. But I don't really stick my head out and. I've been chastised for it, you know, from the spirit or from the earth or from my ancestors or whoever on the other side there has said, no, 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 you don't get to do that, you know. And then something's happened and it's a, it's a crack of the whip or a crack of lightning or whatever that wakes you up. And most recently I, I had Lyme, well, I suppose I still have Lyme disease, but I got Lyme really bad about four years ago. Uh, so much so that I was like a 97-year-old man. Like, it was incredible how close to death I felt. Like, and, you know, people say that when they have lines. So it's clearly part of the way the disease works. But the blessing of it all is huge wake-up call, right? It's like, hey, buddy, you could be dead soon. You've been given all these treasures. You get out there. You start passing it on, you know? You do podcasts and you do radio shows and you go out and talk in public and you do workshops and you have to do it. You know, I'm not allowed to kind of hide out anymore. Maybe when I'm an old man or something, I'll be able to hide out again. But it's kind of part of the duty now to stick my neck out. And, and you know, so it's not enough to just acquire all this stuff, right? you got to do something with it. And that's what's brought you to teach and to write your book and do this outreach? Yeah, and it's really it's really nice to keep this stuff in mind too, like always forefront in your mind because this whole thing with the internet and how everything works now is this kind of insane marketing thing. It's kind of a job in itself, and if you start <laughs> thinking about it just too much, it all starts to feel really kind of sleazy and not good, you know? Yeah. But if you're thinking that you constantly fore forefront in your mind that this is your job and your job is to share this stuff and that these are certain channels you're going to have to go through to get people's attention, right? Because it takes quite a bit to get people's attention now, right? I mean, I used to think that it was just enough to have the knowledge and people would, you know, beat a path to my door. And oddly enough, it used to kind of happen that way before about 10, 15 years ago. Our workshops just got more and more popular. But then as the Internet thing started to go up, our workshops started to go down. Because suddenly, if you didn't have an online presence, then you're not credible. You don't really exist, you know. So it's really funny that we've been getting out there. The sacredgardener.ca is our website, and uh, Megan, my partner, has been working on it. And, you know, we've been working on it for a couple of years now, like one or two years. And, um, you know, people just assume that we just started, right? But it's like, well, actually, no, we didn't start. We just kind of caught up to the, the game that's going on now. So that's interesting, too, you know, it's just kind of realizing, okay, there's this whole other thing going on. What way can we do this? And, you know, you're doing it yourself, Scott, with this program. And we all got to think about ways that we can be using this nasty technology, which is essentially based on all really nasty stuff, right? Like heavy metals and plastic and military technology in outer space and all that stuff, right? That's how we're talking right now is through the miracle of these little elementals that have been captured so we better use our time wisely, right, while we have it. And while all this stuff is still working, and maybe it always will, and maybe it won't, but in any case, to just not be wasting it, right, but using it in a good way so that overall you can say, well, something positive came of that, you know? It wasn't just for um, Game Boys or, or whatever, <laughs> turning people into zombies, you know, that there was a higher purpose in all this electronic, you know, messiness, essentially. Using it in a good way points to something that I've been and continue to explore in that 
if we live intentionally and we're actively choosing the ways that we interact with technology and what it is that we do, then we can understand the impacts of what it is that we're doing and work in ways to minimize that, to spend more time making decisions about, do I really want to go to the grocery store or do I want to go to my farmer's market or am I going to, because it's the right season, going to go foraging for the berries that I want to have in my evening meal? Yeah. Or are you even going to take a break now and then, right? Like have a little fast or go without. Because <laughs> we're not so good at that in our culture. But of course, it's essential for our, our spiritual being and for our physical being that these fasts happen that we learn to go without stuff. Uh, there was recently this book written, we wrote, we, uh, we read it a couple of years ago called The End of Absence. I forget the fellow's name that wrote it, but it was just how kids are raised now with these phones and other things and just all of us never have to wait for anything. We never have to go without anymore. There's this kind of instantaneous lifestyle that we require and boy, it's scary because it turns people into monsters, basically, right? Like, we just don't have that kind of consciousness to be able to handle getting what we want that much. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's part of the design of things that we have to suffer a little bit. And so, even when you're making these decisions to, yeah, okay, I'm going to get in the car and there's a few good things that are going to come out of it because I'm going to take a trip and I'm going to... Um, go to Sally Ann and pick up some clothes for my kids and then I'm going to go to the market, the farmer's market, and then you know, I'm going to use the car the best I can, use that. But then also feeling some remorse and some sadness. Not, not enough that it, it uh, paralyzes your life, but just a moment's hesitation to realize this terrible thing that we're all doing when we're driving, right? Which we are, and you know we all know it, but like everything else that we do that's wrong, we have a way of kind of pushing it out of the way. But living with our hypocrisy, living with who we who we really are, right, in a deep way is also important because like you, like you were getting at there and like you said, that's going to prevent you from getting in the car the odd time. You know, so like here at the farm, I mean, we got kids and stuff, so, you know, we don't want the... We don't want the Ozark experience, right? We don't want to turn them into that. We homeschool and stuff. So they got to go out now and then. Uh, no offense to anyone listening from Ozarks, but you get my joke, right? So, you know, we do go out now and then, but we try to do many things when we go out, and then the car sits for five days, and it doesn't get used, you know? And that's pretty much every week. Like, there's, there's stretches where we don't go out, and we don't go to town just because we need one thing or something. I mean, we do pretty much grow all our own food, so that's that's a huge advantage, obviously. But you can do bulk purchases, and you can do things like that, so you don't have to go out and use the car all the time. Anyways, like you were saying, just to get back to your point, there's these choices that are sitting right in front of us, all of us, every day, every moment, where we get to make a choice. You know, So this whole idea of blaming the environmental thing on other people is just a complete fallacy. You, know, you you take care of yourself, and everything else will take care of itself, right? With living on the farm, you mentioned growing all your own food. Did it take you a while to get to that level of self-sufficiency? Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and you know, there's this whole thing like, first, can you produce enough in a good integrated way? So most of this is from no-till gardens, orchards, wild all kind of various hedgerows around here that are mostly wild. So it takes a while just to be organized and learn a, enough kind of technique and enough things to be able to generate the food. And then the next step comes, at least in the northeast where we are here, where you have to preserve it, right? Because we live in this kind of insane place where for six months of the year the ground is frozen. So the idea of being able to walk outside and harvest food kind of year-round, that doesn't exist here. That's like Hawaii or, or Southern California or, <laughs> you know, whatever other parts of the world, Australia or something. Here we live in a really kind of violent wobble of the earth. It's just the way things are, and it's actually really intense. Like the way things close in on us. Oh, by the way, happy fall. 
happy equinox. You know, it's just beginning now. We're we're just starting to get our first frosts up where I am. We're in zone three. The intensity of that shift, oh my God. Like if you think about, again, not having any expectations, if you'd never seen the fall, if you'd never seen the end of summer before, holy devastation, everything dies. Like really think about the trauma, the, the level of trauma of that. Every year this happens. So this kind of anxiety in the Northeast, if you feel anxious in the fall and you feel like you should be busy, that's good. That means you're connected with the earth, you know? Like that's why we don't have stimulants in the North, right? We don't need stimulants. We have the winter. (laughs) Wakes us right up, you know? In the South, that's where all the stimulants naturally grow because they need them. It's all, you know, manana down there, right? So anyways, it, it really is this incredibly powerful shift that happens every year. And so the second step is not just generating the food, it's preserving it. And how are you going to preserve it in the best way and in a way that you and your kids are going to eat it so you don't just waste <laughs> you know, all this energy and waste these gifts from the earth. And so I kind of feel like it's almost a two-phase process. It's first like learning how to generate these foods that you eat, and then it's this whole preserving thing. And so, um, you know, uh, fermentation has become a huge thing for us. Uh, a number of years back, Sander Katz was up at the farm here, did a workshop with us, and really turned us on to the level of fermentation historically that went on, you know, uh, which was huge huge. We couldn't have survived without it. And then in this process of kind of sterilizing our world, we kind of pushed all that fermentation aside. So much so that I even live in quite a traditional area. Um, There's German people who came directly from Germany a couple hundred years ago and are still practicing like the sauerkraut and certain other traditional ferments up here. But then they'll boil it. After they make it, they boil it and can it up. And so the whole, the whole probiotic, the whole, well, I won't say the whole purpose because it is a taste and there's some other things that you get by fermenting stuff, but the primary kind of uh, bonus that you're getting this huge amount of lactobacteria and, and kind of live food, they couldn't handle that. It was probably post-World War II. That's when most of this kind of insanity all started to kick in. And, um, you know, so they, they even sterilized something like that. So there's this constant kind of trying to recreate, relearn, co-create these ancestral cultural practices like fermentation and, you know, somebody like Sandor has really helped us all in a huge way with that. And I've interviewed Sandor in the past and I love his work because it all came together for me when I was at the Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergence. One of the presenters there, Diane, was talking about what forms of food preservation there are and the amount of energy that's required in order to store food for a long time. And that other than something like a solar dryer, that fermentation is the lowest form of energy required in order to store food long term. Whereas the highest energy requirement for most folks is going to be freezing because we have to use a piece of technology to keep it cold all that time. Yep, for sure. And And I think, you know, We've kind of been really hardcore here on the farm where we were full-on locavores. We didn't buy any imported food. And, you know, we have electricity because the Algonquin Tea Company's base was here too. So we, we were always hooked up to the grid because of that. And we have freezers. We went for a couple of years without losing, using the freezers. But then, you know, just to get back to our conscientiousness, we use freezers now. And I do canned food too. But it was good to learn to not do it and just to realize, okay, I really like tomato sauce, right? Period. I can't come up with a fermented version. The only way I can make this is by boiling it down and canning it. So we do that. And that does take energy. But again, if you do it a little bit later so that your wood stove's on, then it's free in, in that sense, right? And then with the freezer, same thing is... Because it's freezing outside for six months here, if we're starting to put down meat 
and fruit, which are the two things that we still freeze quite a bit of, it's actually not too, too bad for energy because most of it's all used up and then we have a smaller freezer that we stick things in for the summer. But the chest freezer is just a winter thing and it doesn't turn on all winter. It's just a brief period now for about a month and then another period in the spring where uh, it's actually being used. So again, it's it's not like you have to become a total fundamentalist and say, ah, you know, not going to do all that. We're going to live in a wigwam or a teepee and we're going to, you know, not not eat any grown food and we're not going to put up fences for our gardens. And, you know, like you're just shooting yourself in the foot. It's okay to be a hypocrite. We all are, right? But as you said, you know, try to be as conscientious and feel some grief about it. And that's okay. You know, we, we all have to live. We all have to take stuff to live too. And this is something that, you know, that took me a lot of years to get over. And it basically took a native elder saying to me, hey, you've got a place here too, you know. Like, it's okay. You, you're allowed to take stuff. But you feel grief for what you take, you know. Like, you don't just assume you're allowed to take things and have this crazy sense of entitlement just because the thing is there. You know, just because it's wild, for example, it's not free food right, which is this huge mistake people think. In fact, there's probably more payment for it when you're taking something from the wild than if you grew it, you know. So there's consequences. And again, we all have to live in the modern world, too. So like those years when I lived in the bush, I had no contact with people because it wasn't possible. I didn't have a house. I didn't have a car. and I didn't have a phone. So the only people I saw occasionally were my family when I would swing by like where the cottage was, where my family cottage was, and there was people there. So again, and then you turn into a hermit, and then your effect on the rest of humanity and the world is negligible. Uh, Martin Shaw has this great quote, I think he might have got it from somebody else, but it's something like, don't, don't let a marginal experience lead you to a marginal life. So in other words, you have a profound, deep experience with the earth that's outside of our regular cultural realm, and then you think you have to hide for the rest of your life from the rest of civilization because of this profound but marginal experience you had. We make ourselves marginal, right? That was the whole thing with the hippies and the communes and stuff, is they isolated themselves from the rest of society, thinking somehow they could do better. But that's a real backwards way of doing things, right? We are part of society, so it's actually our duty to enter back into the fray. You know, there's this idea of the Shambhala warrior, this Buddhist idea, and it's essentially an idea that came along a little bit later in Buddhism of the Bodhisattva, that you can reach a stage of enlightenment, but that doesn't mean that you get to escape. That's when you turn around and you head right back into the fray, you know, which is difficult to do. And again, you know, I've, I, spirits had to kind of push me to do it. It didn't come to me naturally, but I'm slowly getting it. There are so many places that I could go because of what sounds like in many ways shared experiences. Or I should say experiences that led to kind of shared mindsets on this. But I do want to touch with you on what led you to write the story of the Madawaska Forest Garden. Um, and why you're sharing that with the world now. Sure. Well, um, that book and and the garden itself came from an experience that I had down in Chiapas many years ago. I was gifted by the Lacadon people, shown their milpas, shown how they gardened, and I was looking for that because I learned how to forage before I learned how to garden. It was just this weird kind of twist of fate, but I never was really shown how to garden. And then I spent these years and years learning how to become a forager. So when I started gardening, I thought, whoa, this is some backward shit. You turn the ground upside down, you plant everything in straight lines, everything else in nature is your enemy. (laughs) You possess absolutely 100% of that little square where you've planted Like, compared to foraging, it doesn't look good, you know? Like, ecologically speaking or spiritually speaking, it's kind of fascism, the way that we garden, for the most part. It's a form of fascism. 
this kind of insane, out-of-control thing. So anyways, I could see it real clear just because I had learned this other way. And so I was struggling. I was at a point in my life where I was struggling. Like, how can I grow more food for myself? But I'm not going to sacrifice the forest or these wild areas to do it. And then I went down and I saw the way they did it. And the way they do it, the start, if you're not looking closely, it looks pretty much like a slash and burn. And it looks like that thing that we all condemn so deeply, right? But the difference is instead of introducing like a grain crop for one year and then cattle or just directly cattle from the grass and stuff that grows up, they plant like a hundred things at once and that's all planted to happen in succession, one thing after another over a lifetime. And then that garden is completely given back to the wild. So there's no uh, fertilizers used, there's none of that kind of thing, you know, because the land itself is healed. The land itself holds the fertility. And this is pretty much ubiquitous with First Nations gardening is they never use manure. They never use compost. So they had ways of working with the fecundity, the natural fecundity of the earth, and ways of monitoring it such that as soon as it would start to wane, they give it back to the land, they give it back to her so she could replenish it. And of course, all this stuff we used to have built into our agriculture, right? The fallow years. Now, fallow didn't mean green manuring. It meant you leave it alone completely, right? You let those weeds, those healers, come back in and do their work. So all this coming back around to, to why I wrote the book was when I finally kind of started to wake up to all this stuff and um, I came back here and I thought, I wonder if Indigenous people are doing this here in Ontario, in Canada. So I went to Trent University, which is the leading university in North America for Native Studies. And I said, I saw this down here, uh, down in Mexico. Are there people doing it up here? They got incredibly intrigued with the idea. And I walked out of the place with them having solicited me to do an MA there on the topic. So it was a bit of a shocker because I thought I was kind of done with school and all that kind of stuff. So I started to do this MA. And it's also a long story, but one of the things I was doing in the MA is I was drumming to journey to find out how I knew stuff. I know all this stuff, but I don't necessarily know how I know it. Where'd the information come from? And that's a big thing in academia. How do you know it? Not just that you do know it, but where'd you get it from? So anyways, I did this for about six months, and then my, my supervisor found out about it, and he said, you can't do that. That's appropriation. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. So I went and I got a native elder, Henry Lickers, from Akasasne there. And he came and he told them, no, that's human. These people call it this and these people call it that and these people call it that. And then so they let go of that, you know. As soon as Henry said it, they were all smiles. Then it wasn't appropriation. Then it was okay because he said it was okay. So it was a huge struggle, but they finally gave me the MA. And of course, by the time I'd written it and they approved of it, I'd stripped all the juice out of it. I'd stripped all the life out of it like academia tends to want to do, right? So all the stories and the more miraculous, far-fetched connections that actually were responsible for creating the thing got taken out. And so when I wrote the book, and I actually, I wrote it 13 years ago, so it was quite a while ago. It just took me a while to edit it. That's what I was doing, is I was trying to put back in some of those stories and um, make that parched academic uh, MA live again and, you know, be connected with the land and connected with, you know, the plants and, and the essence of the thing, you know. So that's that's where the book came from. And then there's been this huge rise. I'm sure in the States too, in interest in forest gardening. So when I built it 20 years ago, this is what Spirit told me is it said, you build it now so that when people are ready for it, there will be a living example of what they need. And so now the time's come and I have a 20 year old living example of this thing with nut trees that are 50 feet tall, you know, pear trees that are 20 feet tall 
and the whole herbaceous and that whole phase of the the succession has passed. So we're well into what is an 80-year garden design. So no tilling and no intervention essentially for 80 years. I, I go back yearly and I'm harvesting, right? Just like the Lacadon in, in uh, Chiapas. There's an intensive period where they work their gardens and then they kind of back off and then there's decades of just coming down then to harvest medicine or hack down a banana tree to harvest grubs out of it, an overgrown banana tree or that kind of thing, you know? So that's kind of where I'm at with it. I swung by this year and got some kiwis, uh, Arctic kiwis, the Kolomikta. Um, there's a whole fence kind of line of them up there in the bush. Um, the grapes have all been, were all taken. The chipmunks beat me to them. So, you know, there's that kind of thing going on too because they don't live there anymore. And it's pretty much a wild place. So most of the food that's generated goes back to the land there. But in lots of ways, um, it is an experiment. And I do say that in the book, that uh, you could do this much more effectively. I wanted to use a hundred different species in the garden just to see what would fly. If I was actually just doing it for my own food or my own survival, and there was no kind of study or anything involved, I, I wouldn't do that many things. I'd probably have maybe... 25 or 40 species. And that way you could still fill the, ec- the ecological niches that were there, but you'd, you'd have a higher you know, production rate. And it's kind of a dirty word for me, production, but I'm going to say it this once. Anyways. Well, and I really enjoyed your book because there are, I mean, we have things like Jackie and Tonesmeyer's Edible Forest Gardens, which is incredibly technical, coming out of the States. There's the work of Martin Crawford. And what I really liked about it, though, is that that you call the book the story of is really a good reflection of the contents because of how much you go into the story of the the land and the history and the peoples that were there and really give us a sense of this place that you're working within in ways that I haven't experienced in other books on these kinds of subjects. Well, thank you. I, I, I was really hoping for that, you know, because, again, this whole thing with the lack of integration, just to come back to that, and I, you know... Um, Jackie's Guide there and the Mollison work, his books, incredible, incredible kind of general guides. But <laughs> there's a couple problems with it. And again, it's this whole thing like we just landed from outer space with this idea and we can either just bulldoze everything that's there or covered in cardboard and that somehow we're going to be able to make something better on top of it. Okay, so that's one huge problem I have with that kind of approach. The other aspect of it is if, if it's not connected in with your ancestral people, if it's not connected in with the, the lineage of our food itself, the sacredness of it, if it's not connected in with the history of the land, then you probably shouldn't be doing it yet. Like all of those things I think are essential to have a really, really firm grasp on. How did people use the land before we came? How did our ancestors use the land? What plants and aspects of the land are still there from that time that I can build on and utilize? So permaculture, you know, in these quick little courses and stuff, again, things get simplified and it becomes all about us in the center. We're always the ones in the center, right? But we're not the ones in the center. We're not the most important thing. You know, there's definitely lots more important things than us. And we wouldn't be here without them. So they have to be honored first. They have to be the things that are put in the center. You know, so if there was a historic land use, like, you know, but I'll just give you a quick example. On the land here where I am, it's an old German homestead, 130 years old. I'm the third owner. Now, these people were not big on plants. It would appear the last generation of people were more into cows and pigs. And, of course, cows and pigs almost eat all the wild edibles on your property, right? You can't just have them kind of free-ranging around and still expect to get food yourself. It's just not going to happen. So they did that for decades, and because of that, there's not tons of wild food left here. There's a few things, though. Horseradish. There's a bunch of horseradish around. So that's really cool, because I know that that horseradish might be 200 years old, the seeds from that. It might have come from Germany. 
So to not have noticed that or to think, oh, it's just horseradish, I can dig it up and plant my own and get seeds for it or something like that, right? Holy arrogance, right? So you, you would have missed this whole gift, this amazing thing that's been given to you. The other one is wild plums, Prunus americanus. There's tons of wild plums around this farm, and none of them have been planted. But if you go back in the bush around here, wild plums are very rare. You hardly almost ever see them. So a hundred years ago, or at some point, they fostered this wild plant. And they're probably doing the same thing that I'm doing with it, which is they're making booze, <laughs> or they were making, you know, some kind of jelly or something, some kind of jam or something like that from these plums. And so when I'm working with the plums, and I'm tending to them again, right? I'm thinning them out so they don't get so much rot. I'm giving, cutting down Manitoba maples that are hanging over top of them. I'm tending to them again, right? But they're just in the hedgerow. They're just wild. Nobody would even notice that there was anything tended there. I love that. But, you know, the beauty of that can go completely unseen by people. But if you're actually connected with the land, then you see these things like they're glowing signs, you know, of people in the past who had the same heart for the land and the plants that you do. And it exists everywhere. In fact, our whole civilization is based on these plants that we don't know anything about, you know? So it's really, it's really quite a trip and quite exciting to be on the, the edge of this thing that hopefully we're moving into as a culture, which is this reclaiming of, of our ancestral, innate, I would even say, connection with the earth. Thank you, Stephen, for all the places that you've taken us today. As we draw this to a close, however, are there any final thoughts that you have for the listeners? Well, I think that wraps it up pretty good. Just get out there and do stuff. Right? There, there's something to be done right on your lap. So don't be thinking, oh, I've got to create a forest garden. Uh-uh. Don't be thinking about that because you don't know enough about it to do that. That takes decades of understanding before you could do something like that effectively. Don't look at Jackie's book or somebody like that and think that you can follow their plan and it's going to work. It won't. I can guarantee it. And it won't because you've stepped on the citizens of a place. And so they'll rise up against you, essentially, right? You'll have bug problems like crazy. You'll have animal problems. You'll have weather problems. You'll have other things. And you might not connect that it's because you stepped all over something in trying to per follow some intellectual plan. Take your time. Get out there. Do one little thing at a time. See if you can get the approval of the land before you do it. So you sit and you meditate and you tell her what you're going to do and see how it feels. Because everything has a resonance. Our words are very magical and very powerful in nature. And if you speak things out loud to her, it will have a resonance. And by that I mean it will have a ring of truth or it will have a ring of falseness to it as it's coming out of your mouth, which is a bit of a mystery, but it's one of these things that maybe you could try it in a relationship you have or something like that and you'll know what I mean. We have to get out there and interact with her and do it in a small way and do the things that are right on your lap. Don't be reaching for that book on the top shelf, right? We got stuff right on our lap to address first. I think that'd be about it, Scott. As I say, thank you, Stephen, for your time together today. Even though you've spent so much time up there in the Northlands and the woods, I'm really glad that you've emerged back to share this with the world and that I got to know a little bit more about you and your work today. Uh, well, thank you for the opportunity. That was great. And that was Stephen Martin. As you mentioned there near the end, you can find more about him and his work at thesacredgardener.ca and of course by the link in the show notes where you also find a link to his book The Story of the Madawaska Forest Garden and for Patreon supporters I'll be giving away a digital copy of Stephen's book to one of you so look out for that giveaway here in the next few days for anyone who's listening Megan and Stephen have worked with me in order to offer a discount code for anybody who would like to purchase a copy of the physical book you can receive a $5 discount now through the end of October using the code FOREST GARDEN at checkout. If you enjoyed this conversation with Stephen, 
Also be sure to visit the sponsors for the Permaculture Podcast, which include The Good Seed Company, Permi Kids, and The Fifth World, who along with your support help make this show possible and freely available for thousands and thousands of listeners around the world. What I like about this conversation with Stephen is his focus on being a part of the world. That even though he went off and had this kind of initiatory experience by living in the woodlands for a number of years, that he still came back. And looking through his website, he's been doing this kind of work for over 25 years. I think it's important for all of us to recognize that we can't escape civilization as it is. And so there's an important part of being a member of our community, however that may take place. And that while we do so, to really root ourselves where we are. For some that may involve relocating somewhere, becoming an expat, as I know some permaculture practitioners have done by going to Asia or South America or elsewhere in the world, away from English-speaking communities. As I have my own urge to travel and to see more of the world and meet the people who are there, I understand that calling too, but hope that any of us who move about in the world can really associate ourselves with somewhere, just as Stephen did in the building of his forest garden. And even though he's not there on that land full time, that he spends the harvest seasons there to continue to make use of the work that he put in by planting that forest garden and taking out some of those resources for himself. But also, with his chuckle there about the animals that are eating there, leaving something for them too. As I was reminded recently in a conversation with a friend that'll be airing here soon, one of the great things about this kind of work, about forest gardening, besides being very old, this tending of the wild, is that we can leave it once it's done, and it can still be productive for years or decades to come. What legacy do we want to leave for the world? What do we want to do to create the world that we want to live in? What can we do? If you live in a place where it's appropriate, is it a forest garden? Is it raising your children to be stewards in the future? What is it that you're doing to create the world you want to see? If there's anything that I can do to help you on that path, whether from my own experiences or connect you with others, let me know. Get in touch. Give me a call, 717-827-6266. Send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Or drop something into the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, spend each day establishing your sense of place, wherever you find yourself, by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.